Hello and welcome to the Semantic Cybersecurity Brief, our weekly podcast where we discuss all things cybersecurity. I'm Dick O'Brien and joining me today are Semantic Threat Researchers Bridget O'Gorman and Candid West. In this week's podcast, we'll be talking about how a mysterious billion dollar trove of Bitcoin that has lain dormant over the past four years has suddenly begun to move. A reported new deal between Google and MasterCard that has privacy campaigners up in arms. How healthcare staff are often the ones responsible for healthcare data breaches and how thousands of microtech routers have been compromised. But first, People working in cybersecurity often find themselves warning the public about online scams. And indeed, uh, we've done so ourselves on this podcast a couple of times. However, uh, one of the latest scams doing the rounds is actually targeting cybersecurity professionals themselves. In a rather audacious move, the scammers have been impersonating CNN anchor Wolf Blitzer and using the lure of a possible appearance on his show. No, seriously, they've been contacting people in the security industry via text message, pretending to be Wolf Blitzer and offering them $300,000 yearly, no less, to appear on the Situation Room with Wolf Blitzer and act as the show's security commentator. What's even more bizarre is that this is a classic advance fee scam. So in the unlikely event that the recipient falls for the lure, the fake Wolf Blitzer immediately follows up with a request uh, that they pay $3,000 via Western Union to get security clearance and approval. And then they'll get paid, obviously, to go on the show. $3,000. Who's going to fall for that? I know, I know. Um, While most advance fee scams uh, are fairly crude, uh, this one in particular features a lot of details that uh, would make it hard to believe that anyone would be so gullible to fall for it. I mean, if CNN really wanted to make you pay, really wanted to pay you a huge amount of money to be its security commentator, do you think that Wolf Blitzer himself would, or rather than one of his producers or a researcher, would would be contacted? you do you does anyone really think that um uh, a three hundred thousand dollar job offer would be made via text message exactly. or that cnn would charge its guests for security <laughs> clearance or even if they did that wolf blitzer himself would be handling this uh, kind of routine administration himself via text message the questions just go on and on wild there are thankfully no reports of anyone falling for this scam i'm not sure if anyone would admit to falling for it if they did though uh, anyway let's move on to something uh, a bit more serious because we're going to talk about data breaches now aren't we bridget yes we are so not for the first time um on this show we have chatted about data breaches um, before but obviously they're a pretty uh, persistent issue in the cybersecurity world um, but I thought they were discussing, or worth discussing, I should say, this week, as uh, two separate reports have come out relating to data breaches. Um, and the first one I looked at was concentrated on data breaches in the healthcare sector, which is one of the big sectors affected um, in data breaches uh, generally. And uh, mainly this one was focused on the US. And the most interesting finding out of this report was that the biggest threat when it comes to data breaches in that sector is on the inside rather than the outside. Um, the report found that more than half, 57.5% to be precise, um, of the reported data breaches in the healthcare sector had an insider element. So someone who worked in the healthcare organisation was somehow involved or responsible for the data breach. And contrast that then, just 42% of data breaches were linked to external attacks. So around a 15% difference. So it's quite a, quite a lot more 
um, had an insider element. Okay, that's really interesting. And is there any motives or reasons uh, as to why these insiders were involved in the data breaches? Well, around half of them uh, didn't have any motive attributed to them. So bear in mind, of course, that that could mean that they may have been accidental, um, as even ac- on you know accidental unauthorized sharing of information is considered a data breach. So that may be the case with those ones. Um, of the remainder, those that did have reasons attributed, um, a considerable chunk of them were reportedly driven by money, which is probably no great surprise. Most areas of cybercrime are driven by money. Um, however, interestingly, around 12% were said to be driven by fun or curiosity. Um, so what this meant was it was cases where, for example, medical staff took a look at the medical records of friends or family or famous people um, without the correct authorization, which is still constitutes a data breach. Yikes, that's pretty worrying, but <laughs> it's probably not that surprising that some people were tempted to do something like that. Yeah, probably not hugely surprising, really, that people might take a little glance um, when they have access, I suppose. And also maybe unsurprising was the fact that some of the data breaches that were caused by insiders were, um, you know, workers just seeking more convenience, basically doing something that makes it easier to get work done, but then put data at risk. And again, this is something that you'd see pretty commonly. I mean, we hear a lot of stories about, you know, laptops be left on trains and that kind of thing as well, because people are doing work outside of the office that maybe they shouldn't be. And that finding actually fits in nicely with the findings of the second report um, in the area data breaches that I was looking at this week, which was the result of a freedom of information request that was put into the UK's information commissioner's officer office, excuse me. So this is um, based on UK data. And this found that data breaches are around seven times more likely to be caused by human error rather than by malicious external attackers. Oh, wow. That's a pretty big difference. Yeah, yeah. it is. It's a pretty big difference. Um, but again, I suppose from the stories we hear about data breaches, probably won't be massively surprised by it. Um, this data looked that was looked at compromises self-reported incidents. So you know data breaches that companies themselves reported to the commissioner's office, and the reported incidents have increased. From, um, so this this report I think looked at twenty seventeen and the beginning of twenty eighteen, and in that time the reported data breaches increased by about thirty percent on the previous year, and this was probably driven by the introduction of the. GDPR um, regulation, which was introduced earlier this year, which was making people a lot more, I suppose, cognizant of their responsibilities in this area in the run up to it. And then, of course, introduced mandatory reporting guidelines when it actually came in there in May. And uh, the most current to this report, the most common mistakes people and companies make that result in data breaches include sending data to the wrong recipient by either email or regular snail mail. Uh, the loss or theft of paperwork, like the laptop left on the train, as we were discussing earlier, or leaving data in an unsecure location. Um, also, about 5% of the self-reported breaches were caused by, you know, everyone's favourite mistake, when someone used the two or the CC field instead of the BCC field in emails. And I think that's something that people are probably familiar with happening. Yeah, there are at least two people in this room <laughs> who have made that mistake. Uh, fortunately, uh, neither has resulted in a data breach, but uh, yeah, we'll say no more about that. <laughs> 
Anyway, uh, our next story uh, has a, a potential privacy angle, I suppose, because it emerged this week that thousands of microtick routers have been compromised. And um, as part of that, they're sending information about the traffic going through them back to the attackers. Candida, what's going on here? Yeah, so it's obvious that we still have various IoT bots making their rounds in the internet, right? And of course, many of them are specifically attacking routers. Um, when I looked at our IoT honeypot, we saw that, of course, we get many attacks uh, each day. But if we look at where are they coming from, then 55% of all the attempted attacks from devices that we can identify are actually coming from routers, and then followed by digital video recorders and video cameras. So routers are still the number one IoT target, which is kind of logic because they're very exposed to the internet and they're very powerful as a lot of traffic passes through. And the specimen that I wanted to talk about today is a worm that specifically attacks MicroTik routers. And it does so by targeting a known vulnerability in the Winbox component, which is running on port 8291. The vulnerability has actually been patched since April, and to no surprise, exploit code has already been posted to the internet, so it's very easy for an attacker to get the exploit working and target those uh, routers. And by now, there's around a little more than 200,000 of such compromised routers in the internet, with some peak concentration in Brazil and Russia, and most of them are actually used at the moment for crypto mining by the cyber criminals. Okay. And I guess with about you said 200,000 uh, compromised routers there that means that the attackers could be earning tens of thousands of dollars a day um crypto mining if everything goes right for them yes absolutely well at least in theory right um well as you say if it goes smoothly um but in that case it's actually a bit more complicated than simply installing a coin miner script on the iot device uh, which would work as well, and we've seen that done by cyber criminals before. But here, the attackers were actually monitoring the traffic and then injecting the Monero mining script into the web traffic that is passing through the router. So similar as with the VPN filter malware that we already talked about in a previous podcast, uh, that also means that it could actually affect other devices behind the router which are passing internet traffic through it. So that kind of increases the scale a little bit. But as you can imagine, injecting into all web traffic is very noisy. So the attackers actually reduced their operation a bit. And by now, they're only injecting into the error pages of HTTP proxy requests, which limits it a little bit, but would still generate some profit for them, in theory. Because the story actually goes on, right? Researchers from 360's NetLab noticed that the attackers made a small mistake in their setup. The cyber criminals have set up an access control list, which is quite common, to block anyone from taking over the device. But it's not only blocking them, it's also blocking the download of the mining script itself. So in the end, that means there's not really any mining taking place at the moment, at least not with the routers that we've seen. Okay, so that's why you said if everything goes right. <laughs> yes, as we all know, crypto is difficult and crypto mining as well. but. It's actually that their attackers are doing something more than just mining. In addition to it, the attackers also enabled the SOX 4 proxy on hundreds of thousands of those routers. Um, it's not yet clear uh, what the proxies will be used for, right? They could be used just for 
hiding any further scanning through the devices, or maybe the attackers try to rent it out to other people. We don't know at the moment yet, but having a few hundred thousand of proxy servers is definitely scary as a start with. And even more scarier is that on a few thousand routers, they actually even enabled the built-in sniffing module. So that's a capability of the router itself, which has been activated, which means that those routers are now actively sniffing network traffic specifically for FTP and email traffic. And anything which is found is then forwarded, so the packets are forwarded to a handful of IP addresses. And this could definitely lead to some serious data breaches, right? I mean, depending on the exchanged information. Um, there's a small interesting part as well. Uh, in addition to the FTP and email traffic, they're also spying on the SNMP traffic. Um, I'm not really clear yet on why they're doing it. Uh, maybe they're trying to catch some public SNMP string, but we're definitely keeping an eye on it. Okay, so it sounds like it's sort of a, a bit of a multi-purpose IoT threat and the, the attackers have a, have a few options of what they could do with a compromised device. It's quite worrying, uh, especially given the, 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 the breach um, uh, potential uh, for, for there. If you own a MicroTik router, um, what, what should you do? Well, I guess it's the usual, right? People who use or own a MicroTik router should definitely ensure that they're running the latest version of the firmware. As said, it has been patched in, in April, so make sure that you're up to date. Uh, and it probably doesn't hurt if you double check your settings as well on the device. So verify that the proxy is not activated if you're not using it and the sniffing module is not sending any of your traffic somewhere where you don't really want it to be. Okay, those some good tips there. Um, and I think privacy is going to be a bit of a theme this week because there's also a privacy angle to uh, the third thing we wanted to talk about, uh, which is that Google and MasterCard have reportedly done a deal to share information uh, between each other. And this has privacy campaigners asking some questions. Uh, Bridget, what, what's uh, happening here? So this is a story that um, Bloom Bloomberg broke la um, I think late last week, okay. um, and it details yeah a deal as you say that was struck between Google and Mastercard, um, and yeah it may upset some people who don't like the idea of being followed around by advertisers and tech companies. Basically, as part of this deal, um, Google paid Mastercard for access to a stockpile of its transactions, um, that would allow Google to track whether ads run on Google. Um, actually led to people making purchases in the real world. So in real life, brick and mortar stores, like not online. And um, Bloomberg spoke to a number of um, insiders for this story. Um, and they said that the deal took about four years to broker, but the public wasn't informed that this information sharing was happening. And this is what has led to some privacy campaigners yeah, raising concerns about this kind of information sharing. Yeah, I think that's probably what, what uh, was uh, caused the most um, upset about is that it kind of took people by surprise and they, they, they hadn't heard of it before uh, reading about it. Yeah. How exactly does the deal work or what, what happens in practice? So basically, the MasterCard data um, has been packaged into a service that Google offers called Google's Store Sales Measurement Tool. Um, and this was launched last year. And basically, it can be used by advertisers on Google to determine whether their online advertisement um, you know, turns into actual sales for them. So if there's any point to their online advertisements. Um, and when it launched this tool, 
Google said that it had access to approximately 70% of US payment cards through relationships with its partners. Um, but it did not reveal at that time who those partners were. Mm. Um, and the insider cited by Bloomberg said that Google has approached other payment card firms with similar um, kind of deals as the one it has at MasterCard, but we don't know if those if deals have been struck with other firms. And if that's how Google is accessing this data, we're not, we don't know that information yet. Um, and Google is reportedly testing this service, it says, with a small group of advertisers in the US. And basically, marketers who use the service they see aggregate sales figures and then estimates of how many of these sales they can attribute to Google Ads. But they don't see like a shopper's personal information, how much they spent or what exactly they bought. And both Google and MasterCard have come out and said that this service um, and this partnership in no way compromises any person's personally identifiable information. So basically, to give you an example, the way it works is that if someone, say if I search on Google for red lipstick, um, I click on an ad, I surf the web, I look up some stuff about different lipsticks, but I don't buy anything. Um, but then I later walk into a store, if I was in the US, if I later walk into a store and then I buy red lipstick with my MasterCard, that purchase can now be sort of credited to the Google ad. And um, so the advertiser then who ran the ad is fed a report from Google, which lists the sale along with other transactions in a column that says offline revenue. Um, and this happens if the person who looked at the app, was logged into their Google account when they did it, and if they make the purchase then within 30 days. So the advertisers get a bulk report with the, say, percentage of shoppers who clicked on their ad and then followed that up with a purchase. But you know, there's no like actual specific identifiable information given about the purchaser. Okay, so this is all anonymized. Um, it really, you know, if it, if it works, let's describe it, it's... Uh, it will just tell you that X percent of MasterCard owners who viewed this ad online then went out and bought this product yeah, in the exactly. real world. Um, so why have privacy organizations still raised concerns about it? Well, yeah, they've just raised concerns about it. So the Open Rights Group told the BBC that the confidential nature of the de- of the deal raised privacy issues. So I think, yeah, that people weren't told about it. So it raised privacy issues for them. And they said it raised concerns as well about the use of people's private financial data. But uh, yeah, as I said, as you said, Google and MasterCard both said all the data is anonymized. And Google also added that you just can opt out of ad tracking and um, by switching off the web and app activity control. So they can also opt out of this kind of information sharing. I suppose, you know, you can see the argument from both sides, from the privacy watchdog sides as well. Um, but I guess it's kind of the way the world is going, isn't it? It's kind of the inevitability between phones and mobile wallets, IoT devices. You know, we are being increasingly tracked our habits, you know, spending habits and behaviour offline and online is being more tracked all the time, really. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the um, advertisers and marketers are always trying to find new ways of seeing how effective what they do is. You exactly, know? yeah. Um, okay, uh, speaking of uh, anonymity, um, our final item this week um, is about Bitcoin and specifically a mysterious $1 billion cash of the cryptocurrency that has lain dormant for more than four years and nobody knew, kind of knew what was going on with it or who owned it, but suddenly it uh, began to move around in recent weeks. Um, so what happened here uh, with this candidate? I, I gather this story broke on Reddit. Yes, um, so there is a Bitcoin wallet which has 
about 111, 100, well, 111,114 Bitcoins in it. So it's a lot of money. Um, although it's only, quote unquote, 820 million. So not only just a million. million. Um, <laughs> at, at least at the current value of Bitcoin, which of course fluctuates as well. But um, this is, of course, still a lot of money. And there's also all those various hard forks uh, like Bitcoin Cash, which are automatically generated if you hold the Bitcoins for long enough. So that means we're probably definitely around those 1 billion, and which have been laying there for about four years. So it's a lot of money. And yeah, um, as you said, this money has been starting to being shifted from accounts to accounts. So that, of course... Uh, raised a few concerns and curiosity by users on Reddit, which are now starting to following it. Yeah, I mean, they, they would have. Someone or some people have been sitting on what is now worth nearly a billion dollars for four years. Um, where does the money come from? Does anybody know? Well, the originating wallet might be related to the old Silk Road underground market, Um which of course is offline by now um, after the arrest of the main operator, Dread Pirate Roberts, and the sizing of all his assets in 2013. But it's very difficult to say for sure, right? Because even the origin of the, the whole coins um, were transferred before, of course, and the owner used some Bitcoin Tumblr services to mix it up. So the transfer are not that easy to follow. And... This uh, particular Bitcoin wallet has not been listed in any of the assets uh, which have been frozen by the FBI and the police during the arrest um, with Silk Road. So there are still some certain, uh, let's say, doubts with it. And of course, one of the aspects of cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin is that they are anonymous, right? So it, it's the whole point of it. Although, as we talked before as well, with Bitcoins, the transactions are viewable for everyone in the public blockchain. And this is exactly what is now being used by the Reddit user to actually trace the various transactions in the blockchain. So they're trying to figure out where the coins originate from and what the destination is. And as you can imagine, not just because it's Reddit, there are many other theories being discussed in regards to the origin of the coins. Some are speculating that it might be related to the Mt. Gox exchange service, uh, which have since filed for bankruptcy as well, but they announced that they will be paying back some coins. So maybe they're starting to move the coins for the payout. Um, the coins could also simply belong to some early investor, right? Early adapters that were sitting on all the money and are maybe giving up on holding it and are now trying to make some money after all. It could well also be that it is law enforcement after all, uh, where some frozen assets are not tried to be uh, liquidated without generating too much attention, because of course they don't really want to be um, too much in the public um, with receiving $1 billion, right? If it's true. And there's another popular thesis, um, which is that maybe it was the account of someone who was in jail till now, and now they've been released, right? And hence, they only got their hands on it now, which definitely, I mean, with that amount of cash, that could definitely give you a good start again in the real world. But I guess in the end, the fact is, we do not know for sure at this point where the money came from. Yeah, it's it's quite mysterious. And I guess 
if it is something legitimate, maybe the people who do own it might come out and, and uh, you know uh, acknowledge it at some point. But uh, you know, I think if, if it's if it's somebody's ill-gotten gains, I'd say they'd be quite nervous trying to uh, launder or get rid of a billion worth of bitcoins. So it's hard to know where the money came from, but uh, can we see um, where it's going? Yeah, so that's the the point where they're actually monitoring it at the moment, right? So since a few weeks, the owner of the wallet or owners um, have started to split the coins in smaller uh, amounts and then transferring them again using mixing services to kind of mix up the coins and not making straight transaction, which of course makes it harder to trace in the end. And as you can imagine, with um, 111,000 coins, uh, they are appearing all over the place. But the users have been able to trace a few of them. Uh, about 15,500 coins ended up in uh, Bitfinex, and a few more ended up in Binance. Uh, those two are some popular crypto coin exchange services, which could then be used, of course, to transfer to other accounts, to exchange to other um, alternative coins, or in some cases also to actually transfer back to fiat currency and actually get the hard dollar or whatever currency you want. And of course that means there's now a lot of concerned users that fear that if all those coins will be will be sold on the, the market, this might actually influence and therefore drop the price of Bitcoin as for say the market would be flooded with Bitcoins, right? On the other hand, it could also be plausible, as I said, that they will be changing it to uh, other coins like Monero or Zero, which breaks up the trail and makes it nearly impossible to trace the further transactions of those coins. So this would, of course, be a benefit if it's some, um, some cyber criminal trying to launder the money. But this would also mean that those currencies would probably rise in price as there is a high, high demand then for them. So a lot of people are now betting on it and trying to gain into the right coins and hoping that their choice of coin will actually again rise and make some profit for them. So at the moment, it's still unclear uh, what the intent is of the owner, if they really will try to sell it. But we definitely will keep an eye on it as well. But what is clear at the moment, and that's something that has been shown now, is that it's not so easy to move $1 billion in cryptocurrencies as some Hollywood myth might have, um, well, made you believe, right? Um, at least not without the internet watching where the money flows to. Yeah, yeah. I think I kind of get the feeling that this isn't the last we've heard about this one, that this, that this, one, this story might uh, run a little bit further, given the sheer amount of uh, money involved. Um, okay, I think uh, we're going to have to wrap up uh, now because it's, it's all we have time for this week. Um, if you've been enjoying the podcast, uh, don't forget to subscribe to avoid missing out. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Threat Intel or Medium at medium.com forward slash threat hyphen intel and if you want to read our latest research uh check out our blog which can be found at semantic.com forward slash blogs forward slash threat hyphen intelligence we're going to be back again next week with a special edition of the podcast uh, a few weeks ago we were discussing the growing problem of software supply chain attacks 
Well, next week, uh, we're doing an in-depth discussion with the team in Semantic who are working on creating a solution that could prevent uh, further software supply chain attacks. Uh, we've already started working on this one. I can tell you already that it's some pretty fascinating stuff and definitely not one to miss out on. So until then, thank you and goodbye.